Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, well, there you are. As uh, Peter alluded to, we're, an- we're wandering this morning into where angels fear to tread uh, by tackling one of the, the contentious issues of our age and one of the presenting issues of our age uh, that was a good point. I could have just have done Psalm 23. It would have been a lot simpler. Uh, but I think it's actually incredibly important that we do tackle the issues that are front and centre in the life of our community as well as our own lives personally. Uh, I, can, I would actively suggest that there are some who aren't here today because I didn't want to be a part of this because that's what tends to happen. I'm not being critical in saying that. Uh, that's way, part of the way it works out if you're trying to have these conversations. Uh, Well, as you can see from that, that kind of was a classic conversation, was it not? Uh, In that little snippet, it just captured a whole lot of the things that are kind of going on out there in terms of what the Christian faith's about. Now, I did originally uh, title this, Does God Hate Gays? And I changed that to Does God Love Gays? But that kept, kept, uh, the hate one kept coming, appearing again and again. Uh, Because there is a very active perception out there that God really is against people who are same-sex attracted Uh, In fact, he hates them. And certainly it's a very live perception that the last place they'd ever feel welcome is a place like here this morning. Now, whether those perceptions are active or real is another question, which we'll be tackling this morning, but you'd have to suggest they're still active perceptions, would you not, uh, in the minds of many people. So how do we respond? Now, there there aren't any easy answers, so if you came this morning expecting this to be really straightforward, you're going to go home very disappointed uh, because it's complicated, Uh, and it's complicated for a whole range of reasons, Uh, and that's what we're going to kind of traverse tonight, uh, today rather. Now, in God's providence, uh, we're very fortunate that tonight at the cafe conversation, which will be in the church, um, we hope for the last time in the church, uh, we have the Reverend Dr. Rhys Bazant coming to speak. Uh, So today I'm talking about the issues. Tonight he'll be talking about it uh, from a very personal perspective because uh, in the last couple of years he's had the um, courage to come out and to uh, tell people openly and publicly that he is same-sex attracted himself 
uh, as a celibate single male, and he'll be talking out of his own experience. Now, you know, in God's providence, we're very fortunate we've got that lovely combination uh, of us chatting about it this morning, very profoundly and importantly, and then someone talking directly and honestly and personally about what it means for them. Uh, and I'll touch on that a bit more again later, but um, that's, I think, a really lovely balance for us here at St. Columns. You may never have been to the Church in the Cafe before, which is in, what do we call it? Church at the Cafe? No, Cafe Conversation, which is on tonight uh, in the church. Uh, but you might want to come tonight because it'll be great to hear from Reese directly. So there aren't any easy um, answers, and this is part of a much bigger conversation. Now, when it comes to reflecting on these matters, I think you could suggest that within lots of churches, there are probably five different groups of people, uh, and that may be representative of what is the case here this morning as we gather together, and we should acknowledge the people who are here online. Uh, I think one of the tensions all churches are going to have in the next six months is that lots of people haven't been able to go away, uh, and even though it's fantastic we're able to meet back in person, lots of people weren't going to be here in person because they'll be somewhere else, uh, because most of us haven't had a decent holiday in two years. So welcome to the people online, uh, and that will be one of the phenomena of church life uh, ongoingly. Well, so, so there will be monks amongst us, probably the majority, those who uphold a traditional biblical viewpoint and those who believe that we absolutely need to be very clear about where we, where we stand on this particular issue as being a defining issue of the age in which we live. But on the other hand, there are those who think that the church has shot itself on the foot in this issue. Uh, when we went through the process of having a survey and then we actually ultimately got same-sex marriage in 2017, uh, the church's opposition to that was perceived to have been a disaster. It just alienated people even further. It reinforced a whole lot of negative perceptions. Uh, and that was a really a difficult thing uh, to, for us to be a part of. Uh, the church has been exempted from performing same-sex blessings. So if you're a Christian minister, you don't have to participate in them. There's no legal obligation. Uh, and we should be satisfied with that. On the other hand, there are those who struggle with issues of same-sex attraction or bisexuality and feel very vulnerable even in coming to a, such a gathering as this. And one of the tensions that we have in the church is as it continues to be dated in the forums of the church, such as synods, is we convey sometimes the active impression that same-sex attracted people are a problem for us. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about this problem we've got. The problem is actually real people. Uh, and there are people like that in every church. Fourthly, there are those who disagree with the traditional biblical viewpoint and are seeking to embrace a different outlook. A number of years ago, the Anglican General Synod commissioned a series of papers, uh, which I wouldn't necessarily commend to you, it's hard work reading them, uh, but it's on the whole lot of these, these issues related to it. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of people out there in our church, uh, across Australia as well as across the world, who believe we need to find a different point of view. But lastly, there are those of us, and I would suggest this is the majority, who have had to grapple with the complexities of this issue, uh, not just in an abstract theoretical sense, but because of the members of their own family or household or wider circle of friendships or their professional colleagues. Uh, and for many people, this is profoundly personal because it relates to not just the issue, but about their uncle or their son or their daughter or their brother or their sister or their auntie or their uncle. Uh, or their best work friend or their work colleague or their neighbour, etc., etc. It's a personal issue and it affects them deeply and personally because it's about a person, not just what the Bible teaches. 
And there are many people these days who have shifted theologically on this issue, not necessarily in an overt theological sense, out of a desire to actually maintain relationship with their son, their daughter, their friend, uh, their brother, their sister, their aunt, their uncle, etc., etc. Well, in reflecting on all this, I think it's useful to believe that, to see this rather in the context of the wider shifts in our culture uh, and our values. And I think I shared this two weeks ago, but on the screen you'll see this. Uh, we do live in times which are volatile, they're uncertain, they're complex, and they're ambiguous. Now, this morning I'm not going to be talking about gender-related issues, which is even more complicated, uh, but if you try and follow that in the public sort of debate, it's constantly evolving and changing, and it's incredibly complicated uh, and incredibly hard, I think, to get your head around, and that kind of illustrates this point, does it not? Volatile, complex, uncertain, and ambiguous. In the book Good Faith, Bad Faith by Dave Kinnaman, he identifies the six new moral rules that are based on extensive Barna research in the United States. And I think this is incredibly interesting because this reflects the moral values of most people living in our community at present. So if we could move to that slide. These are the new moral rules. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. People should not criticize people's life choices. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. The highest goal in life is happiness. People can believe whatever they want unless it affects society. And lastly, any sexual activity between two adults is okay. Now you'd have to say that, uh, you're looking at that for the first time, but that's broadly in a gut sense, I think you'd probably say pretty accurate, isn't it? in terms of where lots of people are up to these days, in terms of what they think and how they frame their world and what they believe about their what faith. Uh, if you are in a small group, I have asked you the question this week, I think something to the effect of, well, you know, which ones of those do we agree with and at what point will we have a challenge with them? Because they are very active, real moral values for lots of people at present. So in reflecting on all this, uh, if we move on, our responses to these two areas which require ongoing attention uh, can be fall into the category of what I call the two P's, the political and the pastoral. Uh, as we meet together today, some of you might be more concerned about the political aspects of this, whether it be in terms of the Anglican Church of Australia or the Anglican Diocese of Melbourne uh, or St. Columns Hawthorne or whatever's going on in the State Parliament at present, because there's always stuff going on in the State Parliament. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in the political space. But on the other hand, there's also the big pastoral issue about, as I've just alluded to before, about people in our lives and how we respond to those people in our lives, uh, pastorally and personally. Politically, the issues of religious protections are up for uh, active debate and consideration yet again in our state parliament. Uh, and I think at some point the federal government has said they're bringing religious freedom laws to the federal parliament, given that there are only two more sitting weeks and we haven't yet seen them. Who knows whether we'll see them this year, uh, but they've been saying they're going to do that. At present, religious celebrants, as I've already said, are protected from conducting same-sex marriages. But beyond that, there are many other areas which need careful consideration and resolution. Uh, and there will be, therefore, ongoing debate and contention in the political sphere at a public level around lots of issues in relation to this as we go forward. But politically, this has been and will continue to be a matter of contention within the Anglican Church of Australia and in what's called the Anglican Communion uh, in a wider sense. 
Up until recently, the Anglican Church of Australia formally upheld a traditional doctrine of marriage as being between a man and a woman, and that was a matter of non-contention. Uh, in 2020, the Appellate Tribunal, which is the highest legal body of the Anglican Church of Australia, ruled uh, somewhat novelly, because no one expected them to rule, make this ruling, that the doctrine of marriage as, con as defined in the, it's not in the Constitution of the Anglican Church of Australia, but it's clearly expressed in what they call the formularies of the Anglican Church of Australia and the Book of Common Prayer, uh, is not a core doctrine. And therefore that opened the pathway for the approval uh, of a service of same-sex blessing in the Diocese of Wangaratta. Uh, now, many would suggest that that opened the floodgates. It hasn't opened the floodgates. As far as I'm aware, there's only been one same-sex blessing which has happened formally uh, in the Anglican Church of Australia since, which was in the Diocese of Wangaratta as a result of that ruling. Uh, the General Synod of the Anglican Church of Australia was to have met last year, it was to have met this year, but it hasn't met because of COVID restrictions. It is meeting next year. Uh, and there will be a statement on marriage uh, presented to the General Synod. It's likely to be approved. That will clarify this doctrinal matter. Now, when I say likely, that doesn't mean it's guaranteed it'll be approved. Uh, there'll be undoubtedly a fair bit of contention around that, but the numbers are such that it'll probably be approved, I would suggest. Uh, I'm a member of that body. Um, and uh, that will give a doctrinal ruling. Certainly anyone who's authorised in leadership in the Anglican Church of Australia in the Diocese of Melbourne has to uphold a thing called faithfulness in service. And faithfulness in service upholds the traditional statement of uh, faithfulness in marriage and celibacy in singleness. So it, there's a lot of water going on in this area, a lot of space going on in discussion and ferment. Uh, in the main, Australia has been less progressive than other parts of the Anglican Church in the world, uh, even though it continues to be a matter of contention. Now, having said all that, that's one field of endeavour that's political, and some people will be involved in that because some people will be a part of synods and other bodies, uh, and you have people like that involved in those spaces here at St. Columns, and that's part of what they're on about. But I would suggest that pastorally, it's a much bigger issue in reality when it comes to the crunch. And one of the tensions I guess I have is that, in a sense, we often overemphasise the political and we underplay the pastoral. And in reality, it's the pastoral that's the biggest point of tension for most people when it comes to the crunch. As a church, we aspire to be a church where people, all people are welcome, regardless of their sexuality. And this also applies to the areas of gender and ethnicity. The big question is how we do that, and yet how we uphold the Bible's teaching on marriage. That's a very big tension point in reality when it comes to the crunch. What about same-sex married couples who will come to the church with their children in the future or at present, how do we respond? Uh, certainly at St Hilary's, which I know I'm not meant to mention, uh, we had same-sex couples who brought their children to play groups. Uh, we never contended about that. They were fully welcome and we just included them like any other family uh, that came along. And you've probably had similar scenarios here, I imagine, uh, at St Columns. How do we support people of diverse range of sexualities as they wrestle with their own challenges and tensions? And how do we educate and support our children as they grow up in a far more complex and fluid situation uh, than any of us sitting in this room at present ever had to worry about when these issues really weren't floating around that much, certainly not in, in the active overt sense in the way in which they are today. Uh, you could go on and on about the personal challenges because there are many uh, and we all face them 
in different ways. I should say that like way back when I first started that, that place I just mentioned, uh, I, we, we were doing a series on Romans uh, 1 to 8 in the lead up to Easter. Uh, like always happened, no one wanted to preach on the difficult bits, so I got Romans 1, chapter, chapter 8, 1, 18 onwards, which uh, does include a very uncomfortable session, section around same-sex marriage, and none of the staff wanted to deal with that, so they said, we'll leave that to you. Uh, and I, um, when I was preaching on it, one had this palpable sense of tension in the room when we got to that point. And that illustrated the fact that this was a very live personal issue uh, for lots of people because of their own children in particular and family households. Now, I would suggest that at present we don't yet know what all the questions are and therefore none of us have all of the answers. Uh, as if we do, are living in a situation that's challenging, ambiguous and complicated and changing like we live in, then the questions will keep evolving and the challenges will keep evolving and personally it'll be challenging for all of us. Uh, and I think we've got to be open in that space. It strikes me that when you hear people speaking in an incredibly definitive way on this issue that they perhaps have never really had to actually wrestle with the reality of it at a personal level uh, because they have, uh, in a sense, been in a position where they haven't had to worry about those issues in a directly personal sense. It should be said that there is a market in churchland for preaching in an incredibly clear-cut way because people want clear-cut answers. Uh, but I don't personally think that that clear-cut approach necessarily works out when it comes to the reality of people living out their lives and their network of friendships. The tension is often that it doesn't work. So one of my convictions is that we have to both work hard at upholding the Bible's teaching, which I do, and yet we also need to have something meaningful to say pastorally for people who are same-sex attracted. So on the one hand, it's one thing to say this is what the Bible teaches, on the other hand, it's another thing to say, well, this is what the Bible teaches, how the heck are you going to live it out? Because that's the big underlying tension, is it not, for, uh, as we seek to think about that. Interestingly, if you want to go pick into this book, which I don't commend, uh, and I'm not suggesting you go out and read it, um, the people who are advocating a change of perspective actually basically acknowledge that you can't find that from Scripture. Uh, which was honest of them, <laughs> but it does illustrate the tension uh, in another theological sense as well. So it's one thing to uphold biblical orthodoxy, it's another thing to help people to work out how to live it out. So how, in fact, should we respond? Well, firstly, marriage is upheld by scripture. Uh, I have issued, put out this morning, a statement which EFAC Australia, which I chair, has put out on same pastoral statement on same-sex relationships. You haven't got it, people should all be reading it. Uh, I was a school teacher once, you know, I know how people behave. Uh, so uh, you can get this at the end, at the table up the back, uh, because it does capture some of this. Uh, but it puts it up here, it puts it this way. We uphold the formularies of the Anglican Church of Australia, which are grounded in the Bible's teaching. The Christian right of marriage is between a man and a woman. Both Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 5, uh, and St. Paul affirmed what God instituted across all ages in the words of Genesis 24, uh, 22, 24 rather. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The in introduction to the Anglican Marriage Service, uh, Order 2, upholds uh, this unbroken conviction in this way. Scripture teaches that marriage is a lifelong partnership uniting a woman and a man in heart, mind, and body. In the joy of their union, husband and wife enrich and respond to each other, growing in tenderness and understanding. 
Through marriage, a new family is formed where children may be born and grow in secure and loving care. So that's the biblical point of view. Uh, now, this morning I'm not going to go into great detail about that because that would be another whole sermon in itself, but fundamentally, uh, Scripture does uphold what is con being considered to be a traditional view uh, in the church. But secondly, sexual identity. I read a provocative book of two, or two or three years ago called The End of Sexual Identity by Janelle Williams Paris, and she argues that sexual identity has become an idol in our culture. And when Christians debate these issues, we buy into the culture, she argues, by using the terms gay and lesbian. As believers, we don't define our identity by our sexual orientation, but by being in Christ, uh, which I think is a really profound and important point. Um, those of, uh, amongst us who are heterosexual don't go running around telling people we're heterosexuals, do we? Well, and I've never done it, but I mean, we, you know, I don't think we do it, generally speaking. Um, so, Wes Hill, who I refer to a bit more later, always says, uses the term same-sex attracted uh, because he doesn't want to be defined by his sexual identity. He wants to be defined by his identity in Christ, even though he's a same-sex attracted person. I think it's a really interesting set of an idea and one that's worth kind of upholding, even though it's complicated uh, in our cultural setting. But thirdly, God, God doesn't discriminate on the basis of our sexuality. In Galatians chapter four, uh, three rather, verses 26 to 29, it famously says, so in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. For all who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And I think in our day and age, we could add heterosexual or homosexual, could we not? Because that would be an equally similar thing in our setting. There shouldn't be any discrimination or distinction if someone wants to join our faith community, we don't check out their sexuality first. We don't make inquiries as about what's going on in the bedroom. They turn up, we accept them and love them because that's what we're enjoined to do in Christ. And it's a rule of human relationships is that you take people as you find them uh, because that's how we live out our lives, isn't it? Now, there may be tensions when you work out, when the relationship develops and grows, but you don't make that a barrier at the outset. Rightly or wrongly at present, as I've said earlier, there is a deeply entrenched perception that same-sex attracted people aren't welcome and that God, in fact, is against them. Now, that is a tragic perception that people have picked up but there are good reasons why they've picked it up because that's often what the church in its desire to uphold orthodoxy has conveyed. Uh, many same-sex attracted people have had the experience of being rejected by their church and many have left as a consequence. And in many cases, some, in other cases, this is a fear that they hold even though it's not based in reality and they've left because of their anxiety about how they may be treated if they were really honest about themselves. Fourthly, spiritual friendship. Uh, in this book called Spiritual Friendship by a good friend of mine, Dr. Wes Hill, who's a, an Episcopalian minister in America and an academic uh, working in uh, Western Seminary in Michigan. He was at Trinity Episcopal Divinity School in Pittsburgh. Uh, he uh, has written this, a beautiful book on this issue of spiritual friendship. And in it, uh, he is seeking to reclaim a lost tradition of the church 
that celibacy isn't the end of the world. It's something we should honour and something that we should uphold. Many of the great ones in our, the church, in the Bible, were celibate. Uh, not only our Lord, but St Paul and others. And it has been a great tradition of that church to uphold celibacy uh, and to honour it and to see it as being something that's significant. The church, uh, in many people, are celibate not by choice but by circumstance, whether they are straight or gay or bi. We all need friendships and churches should be places of rich friendship for all people, whether they're married or not married. Uh, and any healthy church ought to be a church which is a rich community for people of any context, whether they're married, uh, widowed, divorced, uh, whether they're uh, unmarried or not. Now, there are many single people in the church and we need to be better at fully including all of them. Now, in fact, in the book, Spiritual Friendship, which I think is a contemporary classic, and I'd recommend it to you, unlike the other book, um, Wes Hill reclaims what he calls, claims is the ancient tradition of actually honouring and acknowledging com uh, committed friendships. Most of us know people who have, are in long-term friendship partnerships, which are uh, non-sexual partnerships or friendships, uh, and he believes there ought to be a right whereby we acknowledge that publicly, and I'm personally very attracted to that idea. Wes himself lives with a family. They're in a committed friendship. Uh, he's involved in parenting the two children in that family, uh, and they share their lives together. It's a beautiful example, I think, of a way forward for people who uh, are in situations where they're celibate, not necessarily by choice, but because they're honouring God. Well, firstly, we're all sinners in need of a saviour. We shouldn't overemphasise some sins at the exclusion of many others. There isn't a hierarchy of sins, and God's not capricious and malevolent. If people persist in willful behaviour, they run a big risk. And in a world where the new moral rules are in play, uh, this can, be both seem, can become arbitrary and harsh. In 1 Corinthians, which Kirsty read to us, uh, we thought about the fact that, in a sense, we're not... We have to actually be faithful to God and honour God in our bodies. Uh, but there aren't, isn't a hierarchy of sins. There isn't some sins that are worse than others uh, because all sins are the same in God's sight. All sins need to come before God to be confessed uh, and we all need to be blessed by God through his forgiveness and reconciliation. And there isn't some sins that are actually worse than others in that way. In the, that is what some of you, as Paul goes on, says that, that some of you were... Uh, in a situation where you needed God's blessing, or all of us in fact were, and we had to be washed, and we had to be sanctified and justified in Christ Jesus. We're all in the same boat, whether we're actually same-sex attracted or not. We're all the people who need a saviour, we're all people who need God's forgiveness, and we're all people who need his cleansing. And we shouldn't make it seem like some sins, some behaviours, are in some other category, and therefore have to be treated differently or excluded. Well, sixthly, the Christian journey is one of trust, as we talked about last week, for all of us. We need to see each of our lives as being ones of trust. God's best for us is God's best for us. Um, most of us have many friends who are married, and many of us have met friends who aren't married. And we shouldn't treat people differently, whether they're married or unmarried. We should treat them equally. Some of those people are unmarried by choice, Others are unmarried by circumstance, and we have to love and accept them, whatever those choices or circumstances might be. 
We don't control that aspect of our lives necessarily, but we have to trust God about the outworking of our lives because there are many people in most churches who would love to have been married and never had the opportunity. Uh, And those people have had to trust God about the outworking of his love in their lives in that way. Now, it's not isn't easy in any way to not be partnered in our culture, but many people are living in that way. Uh, And in fact, in the wider culture, the number of single people is on the increase, not the decrease. Singleness does not allow a higher, it does allow a higher degree of freedom and opportunity, and churches need to be places where people like, who are single are fully loved, fully welcome, and fully accepted, and they find an alternate family that they can be fully a part of. Each of us needs to ask ourselves who we're including in our lives and who we're sharing our journey with. Now, ironically, the beauty of faithful lives lived for Christ is one of the great bases for Christian witness in our day and age. So if you do come tonight to the cafe conversation with Reese Bazant, uh, he will be commending the Christian faith in a very positive way as someone who's had to struggle with his own sexuality and is seeking to be faithful in the way he's living that out. That won't be some terrible thing that he's inflicted with. It'll be a positive thing that he's actually had to see the blessing of God in. Uh, on two occasions in the last few years at St Hilary's, we hosted some youth nights Uh, for other churches to bring their young people along to join our young people uh, for some special nights. And we had the church was packed on each occasion. And I don't know whether some columns came or not. I think they might have. Uh, On the one occasion, Wes Hill came and spoke absolutely powerfully and beautifully about his own journey as a same-sex attracted man. Uh, And then we also had the privilege of having Anna McGain, who's an Australian actress, and uh, she was bisexual and had lived a really sort of bizarre lifestyle as a teenager. Uh, we had a packed church. You could have heard a, word, a pin drop for both talks <laughs> with a room full of teenagers. And they were both very powerful representations of the gospel. So I don't think we should always see this as being negative. It's a positive if it's handled well and it's handled positively. Well, in all of this, a couple of resources. Um, a book called... Uh, Living in a Grey World by Preston Sprinkle is um, a simpler version of a bigger book. This is designed for teenagers uh, living in a... a, That's meant to be grey, I think. Um, Not gay. It is gay as well, but it's um, (laughs) living in a grey world. Uh, I've already referenced spiritual friendship. I think this is a contemporary classic. It deserves a wider audience. A beautiful book. Um, Wes Hill himself has written his own story, uh, and it's called Washed and Waiting, and it's about his own journey to kind of come to terms with the fact that he's is same-sex attracted and what it means for him as a single person, a Christian person uh, and leader. Uh, and uh, a book called The Plausibility Problem by Ed Shaw. Ed's an Anglican minister in England. It's a great book in terms of dealing with the, big, the complicated issues that I've touched on today uh, in this complicated area. Uh, Well, as I've said, uh, on the table up the back you'll find this document which is an attempt by EFAC Australia that I chair to kind of find a balance between making a stand for orthodoxy in the Anglican Church of Australia and yet acknowledging the pastoral reality and challenge that we face. Uh, Well, I hope that's been a helpful way to think about these complicated issues. I know this cuts through at a very personal level for lots of people and I've only touched on that today. Uh, So let's pray as we finish together. Gracious God, we uh, do indeed thank you that we are one in Christ Jesus. We thank you that uh, you don't exclude or reject us on the basis of our sexuality, but that you love us and fully include us in Christ Jesus. 
We pray that as a church you'll help us to be a church that's seeking to wrestle with not only what scripture teaches, but also what that means for us personally and as a community. We pray, Lord, that you'd uh, help us uh, to repent of occasions where we may have unwillingly, unwittingly or directly rejected people on the basis of their sexuality or in the way in which we've responded to these issues has caused people harm. We pray that you'd continue to give us courage as we face the future uh, in this complicated issue that's not going to go away as we seek to respond to it both pastorally and where necessary politically. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.